The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. When I was a kid, I loved going to McDonald's. Now, not just because of the chicken nuggets or the toy you get after you get your Happy Meal, but specifically for the play place. I lived for the play place. If you don't know what that is, that is the jungle gym in certain McDonald's locations. I remember as a kid, my dad would bring me there after school, and I would have my happy meal, and it was great. And then I would just run into the play place, and I would meet some random kid. We would would, uh, become best friends, and we'd play imaginary games for, like, I don't even know how long. It was the best, best time of, like, my week. But that dreaded time would come when I would hear just a knocking at the window, and I would see my dad just, let's go. And I was like, oh, I, just, I would pretend like I didn't see him. I wanted to keep playing with my new best friend. But then he would come into the play place. Jeremiah, it's time to go. We got to get going. And then I would come out. No. I, no, I'm staying here. I just met my best friend. That's what I probably sounded like. This is my best friend. I want to play. This is, I'm having the best time of my life, Dad. He would tell me, no, we need to get going, son. We need to get going. So either one of three options would happen. I would just cry just right there on the spot. I would throw a tantrum, being a kid, or I would just run back into the play place and hang out with my best friend. I didn't want to leave. I was a stubborn kid. But every parent has probably pulled this off where they say, okay, I'm just going to leave without you. That is the most terrifying thing you can say to your kid. Like, you, we believe that stuff. And so I would cry, like, I don't care about this best friend. I've only known him for five minutes. I'm out of there running after my dad. I was a stubborn kid. And this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the prophets in the Old Testament who was just as stubborn as I was. And today, we're closing off our life lesson series, and we're looking at the prophet Jonah. And for those of you who have been around church, or maybe you haven't, you might be familiar with the story of Jonah. He's really popular or famous for being that guy in the Bible who got swallowed by a fish. Okay, spoiler. That's kind, that's kind of how we're, we know about him or we're familiar with his story. But today, I want to focus on the events leading up to when he's actually thrown overboard. Because I believe it's, in this, it's specifically in chapter 1 where we have a window into his character and specifically his stubbornness. And just like when I was a kid and I refused to leave the play place, Jonah refuses to go to this place called Nineveh, which is where God was calling him to go. And so we're going to jump right into it. We're looking at Jonah chapter 1. It's titled, Jonah Flees from the Lord. It'll be on the side screens, uh, or you can follow along in your Bible. If you don't have one, feel free to grab the one in the pew in front of you, write your name in it, and you can take it home. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And so immediately we see here that God commands Jonah to go to to this place called Nineveh. And Nineveh was actually the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And in the ancient times, during this particular period, Nineveh, or the Assyrian Empire, was notorious for being one of the most cruel and most wicked and evil empires of that time. 
the emperor at this time, the Assyrian emperor Shalmaneser III was especially famous for his grotesque and very evil and humane ways of torturing their enemies. And so God is telling Jonah, I want you to go to this place where they're, they're famous for torturing people. And to put this in perspective, it's like asking someone who lost a loved one at 9-11 to go to the Taliban to ask them to repent, to ask them to turn from their wicked ways. This is the magnitude of what God is asking Jonah to do. And so we read that Jonah goes to this place called Tarshish. And so behind me is a map of where Tarshish was and where Nineveh was. Tarshish was the farthest place that Jonah could have gone to, over 2,500 miles away from Nineveh. Jonah is literally just trying to get as far away from where God wants him to go. And we need to keep in mind that Jonah isn't some random guy in the scriptures. He's not some random, no-name person. Jonah was an esteemed prophet. Like the nation of Israel, they knew who Jonah was. He was a very popular prophet at this time. But I imagine Jonah just having his arm crossed saying, Lord, do you, do you know these people of Nineveh? Do you know what you're calling me to? These people are insane. There's no way that they would turn away from their wicked ways of leaving. That's, that's a death sentence. I, I'm going to go here instead. And that's what we see Jonah doing. And what's funny is that Jonah flees from this people, but he only finds himself around the exact sort of people that he was actually fleeing from. Let's continue reading. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And so here we see that there's this ferocious storm that has engulfed the ship that Jonah was on with these sailors, and we see Jonah having the most powerful and incredible power nap of his life. Have you ever had a nap where you just like, you intend to go, you know, power nap for 30 minutes, and you wake up, and you're like, what year is it? Like, it's just such a powerful nap. This is kind of what's happening here with Jonah. But I think what's more realistic here is that Jonah is actually trying to escape the reality in which he finds himself in. He was running away from God, and now this storm out of nowhere appears. And I'm sure Jonah had a feeling, oh, I think this is the Lord. And we even see a lot of people sleep to try to escape the storms, to try to escape the realities that they find themselves in, to escape the troubled times, the difficulties. And I think this is what's happening with Jonah right here. And that brings us to our first fill in the blank this morning. And so if you're following along, here's our first point. God can use affliction to get our attention. God can use affliction to get our attention. Jonah's stubbornness has led him to this point. Jonah's stubbornness has, has, has drove him away from the Lord. God knew that Jonah was running away from him. That's no surprise. In verse 3, it mentions twice in one verse alone that Jonah was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. And now he finds himself in, in this storm with these afflictions, these adversities that he was facing. What afflictions or adversities are you experiencing in your life? Could it be that God might be trying to get your attention today? So to recap so far, Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, was called to go to this place called Nineveh, but he doesn't want to go. 
So he runs, he flees, and he's headed for this place called Tarshish via a boat. And now there's this storm that has engulfed the ship. It's threatening to sink. And now we see the captain of the ship actually go below deck to wake Jonah up. It says this in verse 6. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. What's crazy here is that these sailors are spiritually aware enough to, to recognize, to notice that the intensity of this storm is of like peculiar magnitude. And let's keep in mind that these sailors are pagan sailors. And the word pagan simply means someone that's far from God. They wouldn't have known the Lord, but they were aware enough to, to clue in that this storm is of great intensity. I think they're supernatural things being something behind the storm. And so they go, the captain goes below deck to wake Jonah up to call upon his God. But Jonah's stubbornness towards the Lord prevented him from actually using his faith. Not once in this narrative have we seen Jonah talk about the Lord to these sailors. And even in the midst of this storm, he doesn't, he doesn't call upon the Lord. He doesn't pray that God would intervene and just calm the waters. He doesn't. He remains silent. His stubbornness was so deep-rooted into who he was. And that brings us to our second fill-in-the-blank this morning. A private faith is of no public use. A private faith is of no public use. It's like when, maybe for some of you, this, you might relate to this, but you know, when the year turns and it's January and we have our New Year's resolution goals, we're like, okay, it's time to get fit, 2019, hashtag new me, I'm going to get a gym membership, Steve Nash, 24-hour fitness, take your pick. And we're like, okay, I'm going to get fit, you pay for the membership, you have access to the gym, to the weights, the machines, but you don't actually go. What's the point? A membership only gives you access to the gym. It gives you access to the weights, to the machines. But you still actually have to get there yourself. You still have to put in the work to get fit. And that's kind of what's happening here with Jonah. He is this esteemed prophet of the Lord. He believes and has faith in God. That's what he does for a living. He's a prophet. But not once has he used his faith, his relationship with God, for the betterment of these sailors. He doesn't do anything He's silent. He says nothing so far in this narrative. But it's finally in verse 9 that Jonah finally breaks his silence. Let's continue reading. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Verse 9, he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And so we see here that these sailors are casting lots. And if you're not familiar with that, um, for them, again, they're pagan sailors. They didn't know the Lord, but that was their way of determining whose fault it was the divine will. And so it would have been similar to rolling dice or flipping a coin. But God uses their practices for his purpose. And so they cast these lots, and it falls upon Jonah. And so the sailors and the captain, they confront Jonah, and they say, like, 
this is your fault. Like, who are you? What are you running from? What do you do? Where are you going? This is your fault. You need to tell us. And it's finally here that Jonah finally speaks up. It's at this point he finally breaks his silence. And in verse 9, what does he say? I am a Hebrew. For us reading the scriptures, reading this narrative, it's really easy to kind of gloss over that. It's like, oh, yeah, he's a Hebrew. Okay. Yeah, he's from Israel. Okay. But let me put this into perspective. Let's imagine that I'm a doctor. I actually went, I tried to go into nursing before. It didn't work out. So I'm a pastor now. But let's say I'm a doctor and I'm on a plane and a medical crisis happens. Being the doctor, I jump into the situation. I say, okay, everyone stand back. Don't worry. I'm Filipino. That's kind of what's happening here. All that Jonah does is like tell, tell the sailors what his ethnic background is. His identity in the Lord wasn't foundational to who he was. He doesn't say, I'm a prophet, or I'm a man of God, or I believe in the Lord. No, he says, I'm a Hebrew. That doesn't help the situation that they're in. His identity in the Lord wasn't foundational to who he was. Any identity based on performance or position is an insecure one. And that leads us to our third fill-in-the-blank this morning. Identity needs to be based on whose you are, not who you are. Identity needs to be based on whose you are, not who you are. It's about who you belong to, not what you do. Here, Jonah's first identity was being a Hebrew, not a believer. And that speaks to the heart condition in which he has in this story. Jonah's whole attitude so far in this narrative has been this, has been, God, I know better. I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I'm not going to go to Assyria. I even imagine him as he's sleeping below deck with his arms crossed and the captain wakes him up. He just wakes up and he's probably thinking, you know, I'm not going to help you guys. You guys are pagans. I'm not going to help you. That's been his identity. He thinks he knows better. He, his identity was through his own eyes. And that's what stubbornness looks like. It's our arms crossed thinking, I don't want to. I'm going to do it my way. I think I know best. But the thing is, what we need to do, we need to change that attitude of stubbornness into reverence. Moving from a posture of having our, own, our arms crossed to having a posture of our arms open wide. You can't do anything with your arms crossed. You can't, you, can't, you can't eat. Well, I mean, it might be a little bit messy. You can't play sports. You can't do anything with your arms crossed. But when we move our arms open, we can do stuff. When we, when we have our arms open, we're putting the, the focus on God and not us. It's about him. It's about the creator of the universe. It's about him and his love, his agape love and his perfectness and all-knowingness. I'd much rather put my trust in a God who knows what's, what's to come, what tomorrow looks like, than in my own judgment. I make mistakes all the time. And so I'm a millennial and, you know, I'm very okay at cooking. And the other day I was, I was roasting some chicken and I was watching Netflix at the same time. Like I'm, I'm a millennial and I forgot I was cooking the chicken. And so I, I forgot and I checked it and then it just, I overcooked it. It just turned into rubber and I skipped the dish my meal. Like I make mistakes all the time, but God does not make mistakes. I would much rather put my trust in a God who knows what tomorrow will bring than what, than in my own cooking skills, like trust in the Lord. Allow God to meet you where you are. And so this chapter, chapter one of jo uh, Jonah, it finishes and concludes with this, verse 11. 
the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And in verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so finally, Jonah outwardly recognizes that it's his fault, that this storm was a result of his disobedience, of his stubbornness. And we see here in chapter one, it concludes with Jonah asking the sailors to throw him overboard. And it's really interesting here because we read there in verse 17 that, jo- that, that the Lord sent a whale or a great fish to, to, to Jonah to rescue him, to swallow him, and again, preventing him from drowning. But Jonah didn't know that. Jonah didn't know that there would be this great fish that the Lord would send to rescue his life. And so actually, his actions really speak to the stubbornness of his heart. He was telling the sailors, throw me overboard, this is my fault. But still, he does not call upon the Lord. He does not pray. He doesn't ask him for help. He's still stubborn. He just says, throw me overboard. He was stubborn to the point of death. And it's beautiful to see in verse 17 that God loves him so much, even though he's trying to run away from the Lord, even though he's trying to flee from his presence, God loves him so much to still rescue him, to still send this fish to prevent him from certain death. That's the character of the God that we worship, the God that we follow. And the last question, and this would be the last fill in the blank on your outline, the last question that I want to leave with you is this. What am I being stubborn with? What am I being stubborn with? We're all stubborn. We're stubborn people. We always prefer to do things a certain way, specifically maybe our way. But maybe today, maybe it's, it's relationships that you're being stubborn with. Maybe it's with family members. Maybe it's with friends. Maybe it's with coworkers. Maybe you find yourself at work in planning meetings, strategizing how to do things or how to manage this, and, and you want things done a certain way, and specifically, you want it done your way. And maybe you're just finding just a lot of just resistance. Maybe your stubbornness has led you into your own storms. Maybe right now you find yourself in places of isolation, desperation, addiction, loneliness. Where has your stubbornness led you to? Maybe there's some of us in this space, maybe it's our first time to church or maybe first time in a long time or whatever the case may be, but maybe we're stubborn towards the Lord. Kind of like Jonah here where, you know, he thinks he knows better. He's a prophet of God, obviously, but he's stubborn still towards the Lord, thinking that he knows better than God. Where has your stubbornness led you to? And so scripture records that Jonah is in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. 
And it's actually where Jonah, as he's in the belly of this fish, is actually where his heart is softened towards the Lord. Or better words, is his stubbornness is finally broken. It's at this point in Jonah's life where he's come to the end of himself. He was literally willing to die, yet the Lord still rescues him. And it's finally that he's turned his posture from this to this, that he finally acknowledges God and starts to pray. And I would encourage you to read the rest of this story, the rest of the book of Jonah, because it's incredible. And what ends up happening is that, that Jonah actually gets vomited out by this great fish onto land, and he actually makes his way to the city of Nineveh. He preaches repentance for them to turn from their wicked ways, and it actually works. The, the nation, the this, this city of Nineveh, they actually repent of their ways and, and turn towards the Lord. But in the midst of that darkness, when Jonah was still on the boat and he was asking these sailors to throw him overboard, all that these sailors would have seen was the death of a prophet. They were throwing Jonah overboard into the raging sea. All they would have seen was death and tragedy. These sailors wouldn't have seen what Jonah was going to do, what God was going to do through Jonah, that, that the Lord was going to send this great fish to rescue him, to save his life, bring him to Nineveh, and see a whole city saved. And that's very similar to the cross. When Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross 2,000 years ago, when he was hanging on the cross, all the people there that were watching this which would have been the darkest moment in human history, all the people that were watching this would have only seen tragedy. They would have only seen darkness. They would have only seen death. But what those people wouldn't see is that three days later, Jesus would defeat death, come back to life. And sometimes it feels like when we're in our storms in the midst of that darkness that all hope is lost. But God uses these storms God uses these afflictions and adversities that we experience to draw us closer to him because we can't do it on our own. That is one of the greatest lies of the enemy, to think that we can do this life, this thing by ourselves, that we don't need anybody. God created us for relationship with him and with one another. And so what, are, what, what stubbornness has, has led you to whatever storms you might be in? Are you having this posture of having your arms crossed? Would I encourage you to maybe just try having this posture and trusting in the Lord? He's real, he's alive, and he loves you so much. Would you pray with me as we close this morning?